Horse Racing Heroes is proudly sponsored by Horse Racing Ireland. For more great racing stories, sign up to our weekly newsletter on hri.ie. Horse Racing Ireland, for every racing moment. Hello there. How the hell are you? Welcome along to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Horse Racing Heroes podcast. The racing podcast with no betting tips or news chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. This episode is about Monju, an ARC winner, an Irish Derby winner, and a King George winner in stunning style. He's simply one of the best flat horses of recent times, and also one of the best stallions of recent times. And today you're going to learn all about him, courtesy of his trainer, John Hammond who himself has a very interesting story, which you'll hear all about at the start of the interview. There is a lot of insight in our chat, as well as a good few little nuggets that I hadn't managed to unearth myself during my research. So I hope you enjoy it and learn plenty from it. And just before we begin, you will allow me a moment to thank the show sponsors, Horse Racing Ireland. Delighted to have HRI on board for the whole of season two. So if you enjoy this show, you will also enjoy some of the other content they produce on their social media channels, which are all linked in the show notes, or you could search their hashtag every racing moment. So please do go ahead and take a look. And now, without further ado, let's get listening to John Hammond telling us all about the great Monju. So, John, just for the benefit of some younger listeners who may not know your story, could you tell us how you, uh, born in Kent in England, ended up training racehorses in Chanty in France? Uh, well, I, it was, I passed by Ireland is the main part of the story because my parents put up when I was quite young and my dad lived in Ireland for a long time. So uh, I was at boarding school in England, but I spent a, a lot of my holidays in Ireland, a lot of my adolescence in Ireland. And then... Uh, uh, my gap year as well in Ireland and I went to university in Dublin for a couple of years after that so between the ages of about 8 and 21 I spent a lot of time in Ireland and you know riding ponies when I was young and going hunting and a little bit of show jumping and then I started riding out for a trainer when I was probably 14 or 15 for Jim Draper and I rode out there in my holidays for quite a while a good few years maybe I started when I was 15 16 or something probably so, yeah, in the years when he had some a good bunch of horses going to Cheltenham every year and things like that. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I have here that you, you worked at Lester Piggott's wife's brokerage firm, which ended up in you getting an internship with Andre Fab. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, I used to do the sales, particularly the December sales with Susan Piggott uh, as a gopher. And then I got to know Lester. And after I spent some time with a trainer in Newmarket, I went to uh, America for a year and in California. And then I came back and I was at a bit of a loose end and I ran into Lester and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not quite sure at the moment. So he said, why don't you go and work for this Fab fellow in France? He's training a few winners. And he was actually riding for Andre quite a bit that year. He used to come over here quite a lot, so he very kindly rang up Andre and got me a, a job with him. That's fantastic, and I believe you you didn't speak much French, if any, when you when you arrived there, and it was a bit of a struggle initially. Yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't good, and uh, 
took me longer than it should have done. Uh, I've been here about, I don't know, probably been here about eight months or something. And I was at a friend's house for dinner and there was a, a lady who's, she's actually half French, half American. And she's ended up being the godfather of one of my kids. She, she's great. She's a writer. And um, obviously she spoke fluent English and she overheard me speaking French. And she told me my French was appalling for somebody who'd been in France for that length of time. And I should do something about it. So I went to evening classes and it improved a bit. Gradually, bit by bit, it's kind of got there. But my kids, I still struggle with genders and my kids still correct me when I say la instead of le or un instead of un. So anyway, there we go. So fortunately, people over the years have been pretty forgiving. That's good to hear. Well, thankfully, your own training operation enjoyed uh, quite a bit of success. You had Suave Dancer uh, to win an arc for you. So, and then along comes Monju. He's born the 4th of April, 1996. So could you tell us a little bit about his breeding and how he ended up in your yard? He was bred by a man called Sir James Goldsmith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I trained for him for a little bit already, uh, Jimmy Goldsmith, and I had uh, Morger's elder brother that was, what was he by? I think he was by Sanglemore. He was called Le Payard. And I remember when he was quite a nice horse and he won first time out in November at two. And um, I rang the owner, Jimmy Goldsmith, and he, uh, you know, listen, it was an easy call to make. The horses won one of the nice phone calls you got to make. And he was at his property in France, which is called Montjeux. And it's the most, the horse is named after the property. And it's a magnificent, magnificent place. And he was there and he was on the phone. It was before mobile phones, I guess, I don't know. And I was sort of saying, you know, this is a nice horse and he's one first time out. He's not a star, but he probably win a listed race or something next year. And he said, look, don't you worry about him. I'm watching his younger brother who was probably a foal or a yearling. I don't know. No, he must have been a foal walking, being led out to the paddock. I'm watching him being led out to the paddock as I'm speaking to you. And he said, this is the most magnificent horse. Even at that young age. You see him. And um, so he wasn't interested in the one that had just won first time out. And uh, uh, very sadly, he died the following year. I think he never got to see the horse run. But um, he was a man who had a great eye for everything, art, furniture, um, architecture, uh, women, everything. I mean, he just, he was, and uh, uh, he really, the horse really, you know, excited him. Uh, so, you know, that was my first, you know, and, and, and he said, wait till you see this horse. So, and then as I say, sadly he died, but the horse came to, to me in training, which was nice. Yeah, very nice. And, and did he live up to that, that billing? Yeah, no, he was, a, he was a stunning horse, you know, he was a, you know, he was a beautiful bay with black points and, you know, just not too big, not too small, elegant horse, athletic. And, uh, you know, I know people go on about horse and whatever, but when at the end of his two-year-old year, we sold half of him to Coolmore, Demi O'Byrne came over to see the horse, obviously, because it was quite big money. And he just completely was bowled over by the horse and um, couldn't hide it. <laughs> So it was for in, it's quite good news for us in the negotiation, you know. 
and you know Demi's a great judge and he was right you know he was, he was right he's a, he's a he's a cool horse absolutely yeah and does he have any did he have any kind of personality or quirks at home well he was always you know it's a the dam was by top fill and it wasn't and you know they weren't all easy you know there were there were quirks and kinks in the family and he as everybody knows he he, he sort of had his moments you know I was lucky I had a, my head man at the time was a, was a very good rider and he rode him every day and he did a very good job with the horse. You know, he was patient, but firm, which was what the horse needed. Yeah. Fantastic. So then you mentioned his two-year-old career. He had just the two runs, but two, two wins. Were they both kind of straightforward for him? Yeah. I, I think he won first round at Chantilly in September. And I remember his last work before he ran, because we hadn't, you know, put a lot of pressure on him and he just, he did a pretty nice work and uh, Cash rode him and I said, what do you think when he got off? And he said, well, you know, you always got to wait to see them run, but it would be nice if we had two or three like him, which was his way of thinking, saying he was a pretty good horse. And he won well first time out. And then he ran in a listed race on very heavy ground and he won that quite well. So, and then we... Um, you know, there was a possibility of running him in the Criterium to St. Cloud, the Group 1 race at St. Cloud, over a mile and a quarter. I think he'd have won, but I just, it's a bit of a, you know, obviously it's great if a horse can win a Group 1 at 2, but it can be a, uh, it can be a race that bottoms horses too. So in the end, we decided not to, and just to finish him off those two runs at 2. You, know. mm. you mentioned Cash uh, Asmussen there. I believe he was an important character for, for the horse and also for you personally in your time in France. No, absolutely. Listen, it was thanks to, he, he was sort of advising Jimmy Goldsmith on Bloodstock Matters and it was thanks to Cash that I probably got the first horse in the first place. So I'm very grateful to him. And, um, and he was great. Yeah, you know, in the mornings we hammer everything out, discuss things and, you know, it was it was a, it was a big help having him in the mornings. Obviously, he, when um, Mick Canan started riding him at the back end at three, because Cash was obviously retained by the Nyarpos, it was a bit different and he didn't come and ride him work in the same way for obvious reasons. But certainly, you know, at two and in the first part of his three-year-old year, it was it was great having Cash out. And- so Coolmore, as you mentioned, purchased them um, before his three-year-old season. How does that how, how does that deal get initiated? How how does it come about that they come over to have a look at the horse? Do they do they express an interest to you in buying him? Or yeah, I mean, he um, yeah, he was pretty much on everybody's radar. He was a pretty obvious one, and um, you know, so um, I'd. Uh, told the lady, told the person that was sort of, you know, the, the owners that they probably needed somebody other than me to do the negotiating. So I advised them to call John Warren and John did a, a good job negotiating the deal. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a, a lot of money at the time. Um, but it was ended up being a good deal for everybody. So that was nice. Yeah. yeah, it would yeah, prove to be good value, I'm sure. Um, so then three-year-old season, um, he wins a Group 2 at Longchamp over 10 furlongs and then goes to Group 1 level in May, but he's beaten 
Uh, the race was won by Andre Fab, and you also had the third, who was also bred by Jimmy Goldsmith, I believe. Um, was that a, a big disappointment that day? Um, not really, because he'd had a bit of a setback. He'd coughed a bit, and he'd missed a bit of work, and it was a borderline decision whether we ran him or not in the Lupin. You know, it's never good when you get an interrupted preparation with those horses and uh, in those races. So in the end, we kind of took the decision to run him in that we thought he probably needed a bit more experience. Um, and obviously he had some big entries. So, yeah, I mean, and I think it was quite firm ground too. And just the way the race panned out didn't really go for him. So it was, a, you know, as can happen, a combination of factors and um yeah it was it was it was it obviously it was disappointing on the day but i remember speaking to cash in the jocks room afterwards and he said look they don't worry they won't beat us next time and he was right so and yeah and you know as i said i've also had a bit of an interrupted preparation and things hadn't gone right from in the race so you know he did his best with the horse but he didn't murder him sensibly and um so so that was kind of the explanation there yeah okay very interesting so then they didn't beat him the next time, which was the Prix de Jockey Club um, on the 6th of June. He goes off joint favourite and he wins by four lengths. So that's a, that's a serious performance. That must have been an incredible day. Yeah, well, funny enough, I mean, we'd actually paid 10 grand to put him in the English Derby, I think, in March. And initially we were going to run him in England. And um, after Lupin, we just, I think about 10 days before, then I think the, the Epsom Derby in the Jockey Club were, were they on the same weekend? They might have been, they were very close together anyway. And we had organized a work anti-clockwise on Chantilly Racecourse to sort of simulate Epsom or anyway, you know, with a couple of lead horses to work the wrong way around. And he cantered down to the end of the straight and then cantered back to the with his leaders to the stands and was going to jump off in front of the stands to go left-handed by the time he came back to the stands he was in a right state the horse and he was really sweating and he kind of had his eyes popping out of his head and i just thought this is not this is not the right way to go so i kind of ran down and said to cash stop right we're not going to work him today and we're not going to epsom so we just walked him home and took the decision then not to go to epsom in those days i think there were you know there were only eight runners in Chantilly and he was playing at home and, you know, on the form book, a horse called Oath won the derby that most people have forgotten about and on the form book he'd have beaten Oath, but, you know, Epsom's a big deal and it's, I've, you know, obviously it was the only, it was the best chance I'd have ever had of winning the Epsom derby, but I've never regretted it. Um, I'm not sure mentally at that point in time he would have been ready to take it. And he might have taken it and it might have left its mark. So I've never, I've never regretted that decision. And then we went to Chantilly instead where there were, you know, I don't know, you said, was it seven runners or six, six seven runners or something? Not many. Not enough field anyway, yeah. A uh, tiny field and an easier race. And he, he won it without having a hard race. So, yeah. Yeah, he certainly did. I, I wasn't aware of that story about Epsom, so that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that. Um, so from the French Derby to the Irish one, three weeks later, um, would that always have been the plan for you or was, was there any influence from his new part owners, Coolmore? No, not at all. I mean, they were great, you know. I mean, they're the best people in the world to train for one. Um, and I mean that sincerely, you know, they, uh, 
you know, I remember when they bought into the horse um, initially and I didn't really, well, I didn't know them at all. And I met John Magnier at the sales in, must be in December or something. And, and the first thing he said to me was, don't worry about the bad news, we're used to it. And, you know, it was such a lovely thing to say to take pressure off you as a young trainer. And, um, you know, in those days, probably still is really, you know, the, the Irish Derby is the logical step after Shanti and Epsom. And uh, often it's the place where the two derby winners meet. I don't think Oath ran in it. I don't think he did. Um, so, no, it was, a, it was a very much a logical step, you know. I, I was very happy to go there. Um, for me, it was lovely, you know. I mean, I grew up in Ireland, had lots of happy, happy memories there. So, um, you know, it was, it was great. Yeah, I can imagine having spent so much time in Ireland. It was nice to go and win a, a classic there. And he wins by he wins by five lengths. I mean, he's held up right at the back of the field and kind of picks his way through. It, it's a really visually impressive performance. Was that was that running style important to him to be held up and and go past horses? Yeah, you know that was how that was how the tactics we used with the horse. That was the way we trained him. You know, we trained him to have a turn of to settle and have a turn of foot, and he did have a great turn of foot. You know, I mean, Morgio's two, three fantastic attributes. One was he obviously had a big engine, that goes without saying. Two, he stayed. And three, he could quicken. And it's not very often you get those three things together. And, you know, when you've got a horse like that, you don't want to be sitting half a length off the leader and things like that. Horses don't quicken in the same way. So, um, you know, Cash had ridden the horse at home and knew the horse and got it. So, um, um so that was very much the tactics we employed with him. Yeah, and I think horses last a bit longer when they're ridden like that, probably. Okay, very interesting. Uh, his next run was his arc trial in the pre-Niel. That day, Michael Canaan rode him for the first time. So how, how does that change come about? Well, I think the Nyakoses were planning to have a runner in the arc. So it wasn't sure that Cash would be free. Um, I'm not sure whether they end up having a run or not. I, they might not have done, I can't remember. But... So it was obviously a problem and totally understandably the owners didn't want to wait until three days before the race to know whether he was going to be free or not. So the idea was to ask Mick Canan to ride him and for him obviously to ride him in the art trial. And um, so that was great. And uh, it was a funny race. I think there were only four runners and, you know, obviously he'd had a good break after the Irish Derby, he'd had time off and, I took him to Deauville for a couple of weeks in August to change of scenery and to boodle around with him and mess around with him a bit there, which I think was good for him. And um, so it was very much a prep race and with only four runners. So I said to Mick, can I look, just stick him at the back? Obviously, we're in a bit of trouble if they go no pace, but, you know, obviously we want to win, but it's not the be all and end all. This is his prep race for the arc. So let's ride him to finish going forwards. And the horse of Peter Chappelheims went in front, hacked in front on an easy lead and turned into the straight with his ears pricked and absolutely took off. So I didn't think Montjeu would get to him, but he really buckled down. And I can't remember, somebody sent me the time, the last 400 metres was the fastest he ever ran. I mean, he really, he really came home because he had to make up a couple of lengths on a horse that was flying, that had been on an easy lead. It was a good horse. Um, and he got up and he won by a neck and he gave him a beautiful ride. I don't think he ever picked up his stick, you know, but that was, 
evidence of the horse's innate speed as well. So um, when you look at the basic result, it, I can't remember what he won by a neck or something, it might not look that good, but the way the race ran, uh, it was a good performance and it was a good prep race too. So um, That's fantastic, yeah, because I, I, I didn't know that about the, that was his fastest finishing uh, speed that day. Like you said, he wins by such a short margin at a short price. So that's that's. I can't remember what the fractions were, but uh, I think they came home in under twenty-two seconds. Well, at the end of like that, I mean, they absolutely flew home, you know. So it was a good, it was a good effort to get up, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And just on on cash, did he take that that news? Was he okay with that? Well, you know, I mean, he wasn't exactly thrilled about it. You, could, you know, that was obvious. Um, and understandably, because he'd been part of the horse's career from the word go. Um, but, you know, listen, that was the way it was. He had a retainer within the Arcos family, and they were probably going to have a runner in the arc, and you know, that's just, just the way it is, you know. Mm. So on to the arc then, uh, Monju's joint favourite. You'd, you'd won the race before with Suave Dancer, but this fella being favourite, does that bring a new kind of level of pressure and expectation on you? It's funny, I mean, I didn't, you, you know, speak to other trainers, see what they say, but it's, yeah, I mean, it, obviously it does, but you, you're you very much living in the day with those horses and you're thinking about what you're going to do with the horse each day, its final work and the way you space the workouts and the way the leader was going to work and all, all that. So, so basically all you're doing is concentrating on just getting the horse to the race in good shape and you know, usual thing, avoiding accidents happening and then avoiding, you know, silly things that can happen and whatever. And then you've got to be a bit lucky that, you know, the horse stays healthy and all that stuff. So, um, so you're really just concentrating on a day to day business with that each day the horse's work is done in the right way that suits him and just trying to get the horse there in the right shape, you know. Yeah, one day at a time. And he gets up by half a length to beat the Japanese horse, El Condor Passa. Um, he was right on the rail. I'm guessing early in the straight, it was maybe a difficult enough watch for you at that point. Well, it's a funny thing because his his last big work was 10 days before the race. It was the way we used to do it. And then on a Thursday, and then the following Wednesday, six days later, those horses would breeze them up the straight gallop in Shanti, just five for them, sometimes with a leader, sometimes on their own. And um, we were standing on the straight gallop called the Reservoir, the Reservoir, a very famous gallop in Shanti, just waiting for the horse to come up. And by a sort of weird coincidence, whatever, the Japanese horse was working on the same track on the same time. And he came up a minute, literally before ours, and he absolutely flew. And he just didn't touch the ground. And I mean, I remember, you know, it's not often you see a horse work, you think, oh, wow. And I can't remember who I was with. I turned and I said, well, you know, whatever beats him will win if they, if anything does beat him. And Morgia came up and went nicely, went well, but not not as well, I would say, not as eye-catching as the other horse. So, um, and to be fair to El Condor Passa, he was, the ground was soft, which wasn't really his deal. Um, and he went in front on an easy lead. So when he went clear, turning in the straight, Morsha was a bit popped in. I thought, well, if we get out, we'll finish second, you know? 
Um, so having seen the way that the horse worked too, um, and you know, the soft ground was in our favor. Um, so in the end he reeled him in. Um, but I think they were four or five lengths in front of the third. It was four or five lengths in front of the fourth. I think the fourth horse was beaten 11 or 12 lengths. So, you know, the, he was a really good horse, El Condo Paso. He really was. Um, so it was a good performance. No, it was a great performance. And he'd, he'd won more run that season in the Japan Cup in November. Runs with credit in fourth. How, how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, it was weird looking back. I made a mistake just before the arc. There was a forfeit for the champion stakes. And I sort of thought, well, it's heavy ground for the yard. It's only two weeks after the yard, and I'm not going to want to run him. And I took him out. And funnily enough, although it was heavy ground in the yard and he had a race, the horse was absolutely buzzing after it. And if I left him in the champion stakes, I'd run him in the champion stakes. And I hadn't. I'd taken him out like an idiot, but there we go. Um, and then the horse was just in really good shape. And... We were already thinking about his four-year-old year and we were thinking this is a horse that obviously we were going to try and win the King George with him and then maybe a second arc. So already we had it in our minds that we weren't going to have an early start to his four-year-old year. We were going to have a late start. And I was thinking then about starting him off in the race in Ireland, whenever it is, late May. Um, so I was suddenly thinking we got six months with this horse kicking our heels slightly and he's you know, he, he's quite a handful when he's fresh. And it's really weird because if you'd asked me before, is it a good idea to run a three-year-old in the art in Japan Cup? I'd have said, no, it's fucking crazy. And I probably still say that now. But I sort of thought, well, you know, the whole trip to Japan and whatever. The thing about when you run horses abroad is it really matures them. It really brings them on, in my experience. And it makes them a better horse. It makes them a tougher horse. It makes them a more experienced horse. So I thought, well, you know, it'll it'll be really something for the horse to get his teeth into, you know, and then we're going to have a long break anyway after that. Um, so I had this idea of taking him to Japan, which is a bit like and stupid. But anyway. um, and at that time, um, Japan Cup's a tricky race because... There's, you go to a quarantine center in Tokyo where you stay for five or six days, and then you've got to move to the track about five or six days before the race. So it's quite difficult to get your work pattern right. And that's why I think it's a difficult race to prepare for. And also at that time, um, flights weren't allowed to fly over Russian airspace. I can't remember why. So the flight had to go from Europe via Alaska to Tokyo. And the plane put down in Alaska to refuel, then went to Tokyo. So it was a hell of a long journey. And then you've got a really crappy van ride from Tokyo airport to the quarantine station is often takes place in Russia. And it's a, it takes a two and a half hours to go 20 miles on ridiculous and it's just a bad journey so it's a really 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 long journey it was um and again i sort of made a mistake because he arrived there at about six in the evening i think japanese time and i said to my head man who was with him over the following morning just riding him out for a walk and a little jog and actually the horse um 
I probably should have even left him in his box or just had him let out the following day. And he went out for a job and he got slightly set fast. He's probably very tired after the journey. So then we were always up against it, whether to run him or not. So he had ended up having a rubbish preparation. And it wasn't even until I obviously flew over about five days before the race. And it was probably only two days before the race or maybe even, I can't remember, even the day before that we took the decision to actually run him. And hence he'd had, again, a, a, a rubbish preparation and it was very firm ground. And so he finished fourth, beaten a couple of lengths. Um, but yeah, so that was the story then. Um, but he took it, he took it. And I think it did, it did, um, apart from the fact that he got beat, which wasn't great, it didn't damage him for his four-year-old career, no, which is a really important thing, you know? Yeah, certainly not. It sounds like quite a remarkable performance to, to still come forth in a race like that after after all those difficulties. Um, before his four-year-old career, was there any discussion or pressure um, of him being retired to stud? You know, he had a number of Group 1s in the bag already. Well, funnily enough, I mean, I remember speaking to, I think it was Michael Tabor or something, and so, yeah, I mean, there was obviously a bit of discussion about it, yes, and... I sort of said, look, I completely understand it. If you do want to retire the horse as, uh, this was probably, this was obviously before the Japan Cup. This was after the arc. And, uh, you know, if you do want to retire the horse, obviously we kept Swell Darts from training it before when he got injured, it didn't pan out at all. And it's a big, you know, it's a risk to keep these horses in training in four because if it doesn't work, they go to stud and they've been slightly forgotten something else has come through and is in the light. So you're starting your stud career slightly off the back foot. So yeah, it's, it's always a risk. Um, but everybody, all the owners were incredibly game and said, no, look, this is a really nice horse. We want to have the fun of running him. And, you know, I was very, I completely, you know, I wasn't really pushing for him to stay in training in Forbes. I completely understood that they did want to retire the horse. Um, you know, he'd won two derbies in an arc, so it was perfectly logical if they did, but they were very game and everybody took the decision to keep him in training. And thankfully, his four-year-old season gets off to a very smooth uh, start. He wins the Tatsko Cup at the Curra very easily. Um, and then the Grand Prix de Saint-Cloud, two Group 1s winning easily. Were they just straightforward assignments for him at this point? Well, you know, as I said, we'd always intended to have a late start. And so we chose the Tattersall's Gold Cup. I think it's end of May, isn't it? That's right. Um, to, you know, almost nice to start back over a slightly shorter distance for a comeback race. So that all fitted. And so we took him over there and he was a ridiculously short price. And I remember saying to Mick Canan in the, in the parade, you know, drop him out. That's how we ride the horse. And in a rather cocky, arrogant way, I remember saying, you know, I used to come racing here a lot as a kid and, you know, you know I know the car up, did I fart? You know, it always opens up, you'll always get a gap. <laughs> and so halfway up the straight, Kieran Fallon's ridden a masterful race and he's got Mick Cannon absolutely in the pocket. And Mick said afterward, you know, I was sweating in the stands and he said, it did go through my head. He said, I wanted to bloody kill you at that moment in time for the orders you've given me. <laughs> so, and I completely understood, you know, his feeling. And then a little gap just opened up in front of him and he slid through it like that and he won on a tight rein. So in the end, it was a perfect first race because he had a race without having a race. 
and Mick did a lovely job and didn't panic when he was blocked in. And um, so actually visually, it's a very exciting race to watch. Um, it's great. I got the impression that if he wasn't so good, he wouldn't have been able to take that small little gap when it eventually came. You know, Mick was just traveling so well. A sniff of a gap came and he just... Yeah, all the jockeys will tell you that, you know, when you're when you're traveling well and you've got a, a lot of juice, you can go for those gaps. And, uh, and you know, often people will say after a race, when, oh, why didn't the jockey go through the gap when it was there? And as Lester said to me once, he said, or we said to an owner once, well, I think we were in Switzerland or something and for the Swiss Derby. And this instant happened when the gap opened. And uh, the guy said, why didn't you go through the gap? And he said, well, the problem was the, tra- the gap was traveling faster than I was. <laughs> oh that's fantastic i haven't heard that one before that's great that kind of explains it so and in this instance obviously the moment it opened up sure we went and the grand prix de saint clue then reasonably straightforward for him yeah it was but it was really firm ground and um you know, it wasn't a big secret that the horse liked a bit of cut in the ground and it was a very, very hot summer. So, um, yeah, he won it well. And obviously, the, you know, we had this program in mind. I think it was a month after the um, race in Ireland and it was a month before the King George and it was a weak race. So he won it well, but uh, Cash rode him, I think. Yeah, he did. Uh, but he said uh, he said he was feeding the ground a bit. You know, he said it was just as well. I didn't really have to let him down. So, um, but the timing of the race was good. You know. So, um, and then it was it was on to the King George, which you've mentioned as like as a, as a midsummer target. Um, for me, this is probably the most startling performance to go to a race like that, a group, a good Group One field in the King George at Ascot, and just. He just kind of takes the piss out of them, basically. It's like it's it's remarkable performance, I think. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, our, our sweatiest moment was before the race because he'd, you know, as a four-year-old, he'd always had a bit of attitude, but as a four-year-old, he developed a little bit more attitude than he had before. And for instance, at the Curra, when he ran in the Irish, um, in the Tattersall's Gold Cup, he refused to go into the paddock, just wouldn't go. So we had to walk him out onto the racetrack down the racetrack and back in the gate where they actually came out of. And he was fine. That was okay. So, but he, sound clue, I think he was okay. I can't remember. And then in Ascot, it was the old Ascot before the new stand was built. And the saddling area was up the end of the race course. And he just wouldn't go into power. He just wouldn't go in. Um, so we were kind of sweating a bit and uh, you know, tried the usual kind of methods of um, encouragement, whatever, a leader or, you know, various, trying to chase him in with a broom and God knows what, you know, the whole thing. And so I was kind of, you know, I think there were very few runners and everybody was, I think he was two to one on, everybody was waiting to see him in the banner and we couldn't get him in. So it was just starting to get a bit sweaty and, um, my head man, Didier Fallop, who rode the horse every day at home and usually never went racing because he was their man at home. But this occasion, he did go over with the horse and he was leading him up and he had his, I think his suit on and his new shoes and he was immaculate. 
so I kind of gave him the nod and I said, right, did he next time round? And when he went round next time, I gave him a leg up and he rode him in in his suit and tie and his <laughs> smart shoes, no helmet on or anything like that. And the moment he got on, he just walked in like that, you know. And it's my biggest regret about his career that nobody took the photo. Oh, God. All the photographers, but everybody was in, obviously the moment he got in the paddock, he got off him, but everybody was already in the paddock. And for all the wind photos of going past the post and patting his neck afterwards, I would have loved that one. It would have been the best one. And sadly, the photo, I don't think anybody took it. So he was Didier in his suit and tie and no helmet and his polished shoes, rode him into the paddock. And again, it was very firm ground. And I remember saying to Mick Kanana, I said, you know, I know this sounds a ridiculous thing to say. And usually any time I say it to a jockey, it all goes pear-shaped. You know, if you can win easily without giving him a hard race, do it usually means to get beat. But I said to him, look, it's very firm ground. And obviously we'd like to have a go at the arc again at the end of the year. So, you know, if you can win without going to the bottom of the barrel um that you know do it like that so um that was why mick rode him as he rode him you know i mean obviously if he'd if he dropped his bum and really asked him to go and give him a couple of smacks in the straight i think everybody would agree he'd have won by 10 lengths mm. in front of some really really good horses um but he didn't you know he kind of won on a tight rein basically from i can't remember who was second but it was a good horse Ooh, second to oh, fantastic light, not a bad yeah, horse. It's a really good horse, you know. It's multiple group one winner, so uh, so that was great. It was, you know, it was, yeah, it was a, you know, as a kid growing up, it was this slightly mythical race, and you know, I never even thought I'd have a runner in it, leave alone a, a horse going there as two to one favourite. And um, I remember Michael giving me Michael Taylor giving me a course a call a few days before the race and saying. Uh, you know, what do you think? Uh, he was probably wanting to have a bit of a few quid on him. And, uh, you know, usually I'm pretty conservative and not that bullish before races. But I said, look, you know, if he gets to the start in the shape he's in that right now, you know, you win. And um, the biggest problem was actually getting him to the start in good shape, as it turned out, getting to fucking paddock, you know, but anyway. So, um, so no, it was great. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was fantastic. It was a wonderful, wonderful day and great performance. And yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would recommend anyone listening to this to go and have a look on YouTube with that performance. It is, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I've been in racing all of my adult life, and I'm just so lucky to have that horse because, you know, apart from maybe one or two of Frankel's horses races, sorry. Certainly over a mile and a half, I don't think I've ever seen a horse put up a better performance. It is, uh, it is remarkable. I'm not sure I've ever seen a horse that would have beaten him over a mile and a half on that day. Uh, you know, I think he was, a, he was, that day he was a really good horse. Absolutely. Uh, his next run was his arc prep in the pre-foy, um, which he wins easily. So how, how, were, how were confidence levels ahead of the, the, the attempt to win back-to-back -back arcs? Not good because despite the fact that he won incredibly easily in the King George, he picked up an injury and he had a little bit of an ankle injury after the race. Um, and so we had to back off him, give him time. And then, it, as I say, it was a very long, very hot summer. 
so we were under a bit of pressure and the problem with those horses is you've got to work them on firm ground um, you know I, in those days we didn't have any all-weather tracks in Shanti we only had sand or grass so and as I said he was coming off a bit of an injury and you know with the really good horses a small problem is a big problem it's like really good athletes because it just takes the edge off them um, and it disrupts your training pattern with the horse so you know he'd had an okay preparation for it and on the paper and when you look at the race it looks like he's had a good trial and won well but you know Mick got off and said look it looked okay, but he's going to have to improve a lot to win the arc. And I completely agreed with him. And Sindar had been incredibly impressive in the premier. And, you know, he was a firm ground horse, put up a great performance. So uh, wasn't confident at all going to the second arc. And he, again, we had to work him again on firm ground prior to the race. So, yeah, no, we weren't, we weren't confident at all. And knowing that, I suppose... It's, he still finished fourth in the arc, seven lengths behind Sindar. Not a bad performance, all things considered, then. No, it wasn't. But, you know, we, we had to sort of go for it. Um, you know, the horse, it wasn't the case of, we've got to retire this horse now. Um, but, again, you know, and I think, you know, various other trainers will tell you this, when you're running them in a group one and you have a messy preparation it's just not the same, you know. Um, so, um, but he came out of the race pretty well. Yeah, and then you, you, got, you got your chance to run him in the English Champion Stakes. At, it was at Newmarket then. Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction after the art was that's it. But he came out of the race actually very well. He probably, because we hadn't been able to work him as we wanted to work him, probably, ironically, probably needed it a little bit. Um, and then there was, as I said, we'd had a long, hot, dry summer and the was on red hot ground and then the weather broke and the rain came so it looked like the champion stakes was going to be run on softish ground so the horse was in pretty good shape so i said to the owners yeah you know listen we could we could have a swing at it um so we went to newmarket and two days before the race the ground was was softish and then there were just two drying days and it just dried up a bit so it wasn't that soft. So he ran a, you know, he ran a race, wasn't at his best, but he, you know, it was a decent performance. He got beaten in the neck, you know, wasn't Monjou at his best, but you know, the, as I said, the owners were, you know, the, on both, all the owners were, were, were game people and um, they were, they were happy to have a go. So, um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a bad performance. No, certainly not. And then they were game enough, as you say, to give him his final run in the Breeders' Cup turf at Churchill Downs. I'm guessing um, this was actually the first time he was outside the top four in a race. He was seventh. I'm guessing the firm ground would pay to his chances maybe out there. Yeah, I mean, that was the one race I had very mixed feelings about running in. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I mean, kind of, that was the one race I had very mixed feelings about. But, you know, the owners have been great throughout his career. And funny enough, before he ran in the art trial, there was a big discussion as to whether we should run in the Irish champion stakes. Um, 
because obviously stallion-wise, it's a, it's a great race. And, you know, we, I'd won it previously with 12 darts that it panned out for him, but I just didn't really feel it was the right race at that point in time for him. So I was quite keen for him to run rather in France than Premier and the owners were great. They said, fine, you know, I mean, it was a late decision. I think he ended up actually being declared in Leopardstown, funny enough, and the racing authorities weren't thrilled in Ireland because we ended up running in France instead, but they were great, you know, the owners, they said, fine, you know, okay. And I think that was probably a good decision. So, you know, the, the, the joint decision was taken, well, let's have one swing at the Breeders' Cup. and. And again, the preparation wasn't great and the journey there wasn't great. And um, it was borderline decision at the end. Even when we was over there before the race, it was a bit of a borderline decision. Do we run him or not? And in the end, decision was taken to run him, you know, incorrectly as it turned out. I said to Mick Cannon, well, look, run him, ride it. It was again, very firm ground. And he, you know, he was carrying a little bit of an injury. And I said to Mick Cannon, well, you know, ride him as you usually ride him and hold him up and just let him come home. And he actually broke very quickly from the stores, which was quite unusual for a European horse out there. And Mick sort of took him back and sat behind, which is what I told him to do. Um, and they went no pace at all, they hacked. So, you know, probably not great instructions. You know, I should have given him more flexible dis instructions. And the horse came back in one piece, which was the really important thing, you know. And obviously it was disappointing on the day, but again, the owners were great about it. And, you know, but I was just happy the horse came back in one piece and he was going to have a career as a stallion. So, um, so off he went to Coolmore. Yeah, and I'd just like to talk briefly about that career as a stallion. I mean, absolutely incredible. Just to name a few horses, St. Nicholas Abbey, Hurricane Run, Joshua Tree, Fame and Glory, Camelot, Authorised, Motivator. For the for the Jumps fans, you have Hurricane Fly, and then you trained Walk in the Park, who is the sire of Duvan and Min. Um, what, what highlights of his progeny were there for you, and can you see any of his traits in them, any particular traits? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, well, the traits were, you know, a lot of them, a bit like him, they had an engine, they stayed and they quickened. So uh, those were the good traits. Again, like him, some of them had a bit of attitude, but to produce you a Derby horse, he was a really good stallion, really good stallion. You know, to, to produce you a group one mile and a half, three-year-old colt, he was your man, really, you know? Um, bit bad luck, you know, I was incredibly lucky to have the horse in the first place. It just been a bit bad luck. None of the really good ones turned up on my doorstep, which would have been nice, but that's, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. Um, you know, Walk in the park went, went close enough at Epsom. Yeah, he was, he wasn't a very good horse walking in the park. Um, he, he didn't, he had no acceleration. Um, and he was okay. But, I mean, he, uh, funny enough, I'd seen Motivator as a yearling in Newmarket and really liked him. And um, I would have loved to have trained him. And so when we went to Epsom, I never, never thought he'd be Motivator. Um, but he did stay walking the park. Right. And, um, you know, he had a good race on the day. Um, ran well to finish second. Um, but it fried his brain. He was never the same horse again. 
Okay, uh, my final question for you, John. Uh, Monju passed away as a 16-year-old. Do you know what happened or what he eventually succumbed to? To be honest with you, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I think he got some sort of, was it complications with colic or he got some sort of stomach infection? Uh, I really can't remember. You'd have to ask Kubo. No, no problem at all. But it was a shame, you know. I mean, that was, you know, it was everything about the horse's story. It was great. Um, and he was great standing. But, you know, as we've seen with some of the other really good stallions, the Galileos and the and the uh, Pivotals and horses like that, you know, being really, he died at 16. It would have been great if he'd had another three years. That's for sure. Because mm. he never quite covered the same numbers um, that Galileo covered. Um, you know, he wasn't a horse with amazing libido. Consequently, his number of mares weren't ever the same. So when you take that into account, he was he was a really good stallion, you know, and then another three years would have been good. But this, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a great story. It was a wonderful story. And I was incredibly fortunate to be, to be part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And John, I think that's a nice note to end on. Thank you so much. I, I've enjoyed that so much. I've learned loads there. Uh, I know the listeners will as well. So I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time. And uh, thank you so much. Well, listen, good on you for doing these podcasts. It's great. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, there's heaps of racing fans out there and follow these good horses and love it. And, um, you know, it's um, it, it's great for our sport. Yeah, always nice to take a trip down memory lane as well, I think, for racing fans. Well, John, thanks so much. On a total pleasure. All right, and there we have it. Hope you enjoyed that. Huge thanks to John Hammond. What an incredibly interesting man. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. My thanks also to two gentlemen who helped make that interview happen. They are Adrian Kugnas and Robert Nataf. And my sincere apologies if I have butchered the pronunciation of either or both of your names. Pardon. Thanks also to the show sponsors, Horse Racing Ireland. Without them, this series probably wouldn't be happening. So please do go on and check out the links in the show notes to follow their social media channels and also my own Twitter so you can get all the updates on further episodes of this podcast. Finally, the bit where I get greedy and ask you to do me a favour. If you do enjoy this podcast, I ask that you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would be brilliant if you could write me a review on there. And any retweeting, liking, or other sharing on social media really does go a long way and will be truly appreciated. And that's it. Thanks, Emil, for listening. The next episode will be released on the 4th of August and is about the former champion chaser, Finian's Rainbow, in which I speak to Connor Murphy, who looked after the horse at home and in retirement, and also Barry Geraghty. I'm sure you've heard of that guy. Don't miss it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.